0: must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream. Welcome to Great Men Back Then. Here's your host, Lauren Scott.
1: You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott. And welcome back to Great Men Back Then, the show where we talk about great people in American history. Today, I will be doing a part two series on Paul Harvey. If you listened to my episode last week, you know that I spent the majority of the time reading um, from a book some of his segments of the rest of the story, which was his most famous segment that he did on the radio. Um, If you've never heard of Paul Harvey, and if you didn't listen to my episode last week, he was an American radio broadcaster for ABC News Radio. And like I just said, he was most famous for the rest of the story segments. Now, I wanted to do a part two on Harvey for two reasons. Number one, I found out after I recorded this episode that Harvey was actually a big fan of Hillsdale College, and he was actually the commencement speaker one year. So I thought that was neat, and um, I tried to find the uh, his speech online, but I was unable to. Um, but I at least thought I would mention that so my listeners could know that Harvey was a Hillsdale fan. And then number two, something that I completely did not even think of, is in my last episode, I just read the segments of the rest of the story but you guys didn't even get to hear his voice and I think it would be a grave injustice to tell you about Paul Harvey and read his stories but for you not to hear the stories be told by him himself. So we will start today's episode listening to the rest of the story with Paul Harvey and then I will read some more that I found interesting And then we're going to end the episode listening to his voice again. Now, I know that it will probably be more interesting to listen to his voice um, after all these were his segments. Um, So bear with me, but I will include two of his own episodes and you'll get to hear his voice. So without further ado, let's listen to the first segment of the rest of the story with Paul Harvey
0: now the rest of the story his name was wade morrison 100 years ago early in the 1880s he was a young pharmacist working at a drugstore in rural retreat virginia the drugstore was owned by a local physician a rather stern old fellow but a fair employer and wade was in love with his employer's daughter Irredeemably infatuated, young Wade Morrison arrived early at church every Sunday just so he could be standing at the door as she walked inside. Passing her house, Wade always strolled slowly, hoping for a glimpse of his beloved, or perhaps even a wave, should she be sitting on the front porch. Wade Morrison racked his lovesick brain for a way to get and hold the attention of his employer's lovely young daughter. And when next she did come into the drugstore, it all happened quite naturally. He said good afternoon, and she answered with the same words, and she was smiling, and he stepped behind the soda fountain, proudly announced that he'd been experimenting, and he had invented a special soda just for her. Artfully combining a variety of fruit flavors, he prepared the delightful concoction. She, blushing, said that she was flattered, and so Wade's one-way romance blossomed into a mutual one. He asked if he might call on her. Happily, she granted his request, and within weeks their relationship intensified. He was about to propose when the whole world caved in on top of Wade Barnison. The girl's father, Wade's employer, came into the drugstore one morning, said he wanted to have a word with the young pharmacist. He said, I'll get right to the point. He said, I don't want you seeing my daughter anymore. And then the stern old physician explained his reasoning, the predictable protest that his little girl was too young to make up her own mind, and then a ra- rather cruel postscript to the effect that when his daughter was old enough, surely she would have the good sense to entertain a more worthy suitor, a lawyer perhaps, or should she be so lucky, a respected physician like her father. The next day, the unhappy young pharmacist was packed and gone from rural retreat, gone west, never ever to return. Runaway Wade Morrison's broken heart did mend. He settled in Waco, Texas, eventually owned his own drugstore there. Respected in his community, happily he married a Texas girl. His life in the west proved even more rewarding than it could ever have been elsewhere. And strangely, he owed it all to that stern old Virginia physician who had refused to have him for a son-in-law. It was appropriate then, was it not, that the most popular soda, invented and served in Wade Morrison's own drugstore, the soda that he had first concocted for his long-lost love, was named after his boyhood employer. And as surely as he never forgot that first painful, wonderful love of his young life, he was never going to let you forget her father, the man whose callous disapproval ultimately drove a young pharmacist to a success that otherwise he could never have known. It was not just a made-up name. There really was a stubborn old Virginia physician named Dr. Pepper. Only now you know the rest of the story.
1: All right, well, now you know the story of Dr. Pepper and how that drink came to be and also where its name originated from. The next story I will be reading from Paul Harvey's segment, the rest of the story, is called Mama's Boys. Fellows, can you be too close to your mother? From feud to the present... The analyzers of the human mind have considered one relationship to be most important, the male with the mother figure. When this relationship goes too far, some say it becomes a mother complex. All right, here they are. Meet the mama's boys. Of James, it was said, there was never a more devoted son. His relationship with his mother was close lasted a lifetime. What impressed James the most was his mother's unfailing confidence in him, the kind of blind confidence that only a mother can express and mean it. Even on his deathbed, James' agony could only be overcome by writing his mother. Ted was eternally seven. Throughout his entire life, His friends warned those about to meet him that Ted was only seven years old. Why? Well, Ted was a mama's boy. Letters to his mother began, Darling, beloved, little motherling. She had a compulsion for cleanliness, and so did he. Back and forth. Ted and his mother were one and the same. Now for Bill. Bill's mother put it this way. I find that Willie needs constant watching and correcting. It requires great caution and firmness, but I do not believe we can love our children too much. You can imagine how Bill turned out. Woody was another unashamed mama's boy, physically and emotionally clinging to his mother virtually into adulthood. There was only a warmth between the two, And Woody often recalled that he came to love the best in womanhood through those apron strings. Frank wouldn't dare go to school without his mother. And the school was Harvard University. Frank's mother had an extraordinary drive for perfection. And she focused it all on Frank. For six full decades, she tried to organize her son's life in minute detail and Frank loved every minute of it. Harry's mother mothered Harry quite a bit. She sat up with him countless times when he needed her. Is it any wonder that Harry returned the favor continually throughout her life? Harry's mother lived to be 94, and right up to the last, there was Harry, conducting business matters from his mother's bedside. You see, Harry was a mama's boy too. And what about David? When David was a big boy in the army, he never stopped writing his mother. In fact, he once swiped a top secret directive to order a Mother's Day card. All through David's life, he subconsciously imitated mama. Her laugh, her expressions, the simplest smile But then, again, John imitated his mother, too. They were all mama's boys. In times of crisis, it was always mother who came to mind. So, fellows, can you be too close to your mother? Well, if you can't, you might turn out like James Garfield, or Teddy Roosevelt, or William Howard Taft, or Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or Harry S. Truman, or Dwight David Eisenhower, or John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Even Lyndon Johnson's most cherished school paper was entitled, I'd Rather Be Mama's Boy. They were not afraid of their filial affection, and they each became President of the United States. And at the psychologist who suspect the mother complex since a reversal in the trends of greatness, well, have you ever heard of Lillian Carter? Her little boy is the rest of the story. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and this is Great Men Back Then. Today, we are focusing on American radio broadcaster for ABC News Radio, Paul Harvey's, segments the rest of the story. The next story I will be reading is called Sear Samuel. I don't know if you believe in ESP, but let's say you do. Let's say you believe that thought waves travel through air like radio waves, or that dreams can predict the future. Every modern-day psychic and seer seems to remember the first awareness of that gift. Edgar Case was a child when he began to absorb knowledge from books without opening them. Peter Herkos' only talent was painting houses until he fell off a ladder. After days of unconsciousness, he awakened to his remarkable abilities. Today... His psychic services are rendered to police departments throughout the nation to aid them in the apprehension of criminals. But this is the story of Samuel, a prophet's name if ever there was one. He was born under a comet, died under one too. Some mystics might say that's important. If you're amazed by the first brush with ESP, Just wait till you hear the rest of the story. Sear Samuel was not born in Tibbet, but in Florida. His young life, though exciting to him, was not extraordinary until one night, the night he had a dream. Samuel's brother, Henry, had shipped out on the Pennsylvania one day. The ship's captain swore at brother Henry and struck him. As in the inclination of older brothers, Samuel went on board after hearing of the incident and decked Henry's assailant. Perhaps his mind was there, that night at his sister's house, the night he had a dream. No sooner had Samuel fallen into slumber than a picture welled up before his closed eyes. A dreadful picture. It was a corpse in a coffin. A metallic coffin, supported by two chairs. Half wanting to know, half not wanting to know. Samuel, in his dream, slowly approached the coffin. At his bedside, one might have heard Samuel cry out as he turned away, still dreaming from the sight. For the corpse in that coffin of metal was Henry his brother, and on Henry's breast, a red rose. Samuel awakened with a start, sat upright in bed. Tears kissed the darkness as he fumbled for the light, got up, and went to awaken his sister. He told her everything about the coffin of metal, about the two chairs, about the red rose, and about Henry. It was just a bad dream, his sister assured him, and they would both forget about it until one sultry mid-June morning. The Pennsylvania was docked, was loading wood, when four of her eight boilers exploded. The Pennsylvania, Henry's ship. Her front end was blown away, and a disaster comparable to a jet plane crashed today a 150 lives were lost. Brother Henry was among the less fortunate, who lingered and, scalded beyond recovery, suffered terribly for six days. Each of those days and nights, Samuel sat beside him. When it was over, for the first time in almost a week, he slept. The next day, Samuel went to the room where the bodies of the dead awaited burial each in a coffin of unpainted wood, except one. Those who held death watch with Samuel had so admired the gentle, gallant young Henry who had suffered so that they had collected sixty dollars and bought for him a metallic casket. It sat supported on two chairs. As Samuel stood beside his brother, seeing that awful dream materialize in every detail but one. An elderly lady entered the room and placed on the breast of the dead brother one red rose. Now, whether Samuel was really a seer, I'll leave it up to you. But if dreams of the future continued to come true, that side of his life had been obscured by perhaps greater gift. For seer Samuel born under a comet, was born in Florida, Florida, Missouri. The steamship Pennsylvania was a riverboat. And the lad who had had a bad dream come true, Samuel Clemens, you know, as Mark Twain. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and this is Great Men Back Then. Today, we are focusing on American radio broadcaster for ABC News Radio, Paul Harvey's segments, The Rest of the Story. And now, the last story I will play for you. We are going to go back to the original voice of Paul Harvey as he tells an interesting story of a little boy.
0: The Rest of the Story Al was useless, utterly useless. He told his sister in a letter, quote, I am nothing but a burden to my family. Really, it would have been better if I had never been born. He had been taken out of school as a youngster because he was what we would now consider retarded. Remember what I just said. He had been taken out of school because he was considered what we would now call retarded and had to be tutored at home by his mother. By the age of 22, Al had hit bottom. His parents, impoverished, were no longer able to support him. He needed a job, but nobody would hire him. And so, in desperation, Al appealed to an old school friend, a fellow whose class notes he used to copy. The friend's father had government connections. And a few days later, Al was being interviewed for a position at the federal patent office. Fred Haller was then director of the agency. He would conduct the interview personally. Haller informed the young man that he needed Personnel capable of judging whether a request for a patent had any justification. What do you know about patents, the director asked. Nell said nothing. Didn't know a thing about patents. The director arched an eyebrow. Under ordinary circumstances, he would have terminated the interview right then and there. Yet there was something, I guess, there must have been something intriguing in the young man's frankness. The director said, tell me a little bit about yourself, and Al forced a smile. What was there to tell? He'd been thrown out of high school at the age of 15, and with no high school diploma, college had been out of the question. So he applied at a technical school, but he flunked the entrance exam. So he went back to high school, a different one, actually, because his old high school refused to readmit him. This time he did manage to graduate. He was even accepted at technical school, and yet when potential employers subsequently discovered that he had cut classes chronically, that he had passed his exams only very narrowly, that he had treated his professors irreverently, nobody would hire him. So Al had had the word loser written all over him. Now here he was in the federal patent office asking for a job for which he was not qualified. But Director Haller was a very patient man, I guess. He'd heard all of the reasons why he should not hire Al. Now he wanted to hear some reasons why he should. And remarkably, that interview continued for most of two hours. And by the time it was over, the director had come to this conclusion. Al was not stupid. He had not been retarded. He was simply a failure. And if he were ever to stop failing and make something of himself, It would first require a large dose of self-confidence. From somewhere, he was going to have to get some self-confidence. So Director Haller decided to give Al a break, a probationary job as technical expert third class. Posterity's impressions of Al is larger than life. He was not inexorably destined to guide lesser minds through space and time. In fact, at the age of 22, he stood at the brink of utter uselessness until at long last somebody took a chance on him and gave him a job at the Swiss Federal Patent Office. And inspired by his first unequivocal success, he eventually learned to live up to his best. And from that beginning became the incomparable genius the world knows as Albert Einstein. And now you know the rest of the story.
1: All right, there you have it. Now you know the rest of the story about Albert Einstein. Thank you for listening to Great Men Back Then. I'm Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.